But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, thank you, Jeff, for reading that. That's going to be the passage that we'll be studying this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll move into the sermon now. Lord, we thank you for bringing us back together. We can trust you, as Jeff was saying, with all of our tomorrows And some people around the world, as Pastor Mike was praying, those in Israel and Gaza are um, wondering what their tomorrows will look like. We don't know what our tomorrow would look like. We could wake up to catastrophe. And yet here we are as Christians where our belief needs to lead our behavior What we believe about you should really dictate how we respond to our tomorrows tomorrow. Should lead us to behave in a way that treats our fellow man with respect and love, aims to honor you, because that's what we believe. What we believe about you should lead us into the week. And so please help us as we see this passage this morning. Pray that you would guide us through it. I pray that the truth of the gospel, what we believe in, would dictate our behavior as we go into the week and interact with others. In Jesus' name, amen. It's important for us to get the gospel right concerning its truth. And as we've looked at Galatians, one of the questions that Paul is addressing is, does good works come into salvation in terms of earning salvation? Or is it, that is, salvation given to one on the basis of faith alone in Jesus Christ? Uh, What Paul is teaching the church in Galatia is that salvation comes not by works, even though there are works that Christians do in response to their faith, but doing works is not the means by which we receive the gospel, The passage that we're studying this morning has two sections. First, it includes a confrontation between two of the most popular, well-known Christian leaders in the New Testament, Paul and Peter. Paul strongly confronts Peter to his face because Paul sees Peter failing to live by the truth of the gospel. Here's the gospel. We believe it comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And yet Peter was failing in his behavior to live according to his belief. And then the second section of the passage is the explanation or reason from Paul as to why he confronts Peter. And so our challenge this morning is that as we look at this passage, we're going to see 
sort of the historical thing that takes place between Paul and Peter, and then we're going to see Peter, or Paul's explanation of the gospel. And we are aiming to see this for what it was in the first century in the original context, and then we have to interpret it and cross the bridge of application. Paul confronts Peter. Young people, if you're in a class and you fail a test or quiz, the teacher might confront you about your performance. The teacher might come right up to you with a paper that's covered in red ink and in so many words say, you did a poor job at taking that test or quiz. And you know that we went over the material in class. And I remember you even reciting the material back to me with all of the correct answers. What you did on this paper is wrong. You need to do a better job. And I know that you can do a better job because I know that you have known this material. That's what Paul, in so many different ways, is doing to Peter. Peter has failed the test that he should have passed very easily. But why would he have failed a test that he should have passed very easily? Well, that's going to come up in our passage this morning. A little bit of review for us, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, In Paul's first missionary journey, we read about it in Acts 13 and 14. He was sent out from Antioch. He had started several churches in this area called Galatia. And you can read about that again in Acts 13 and 14. Not long after he had left, just think about it, these little churches, groups of people have just been formed, they've professed Christ. Not long after Paul had left, other religious leaders come along. And they say, Jesus is good, but your teacher didn't teach you everything you need to know. You need to know that you need to do works to be accepted by God. After all, Works like circumcision and works like observing dietary standards according to the law and works like observing certain feasts and days of the year were all part of the Old Testament law. And weren't they part of God's community? Yeah, they were. They were. So we're shaking our heads. Yes. So it's Jesus whom you need, but he's not enough. You also need these other works and acts. So the believers, these new green believers, bought into it. And Paul writes this letter back to these churches in Galatia, and he speaks with strong words. Verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly turning away from the gospel which I've preached to you. Not that there is another gospel, And by the way, if somebody comes along preaching another gospel than the one that I preached to you, that person needs to be accursed. Kick them out. They're done. Now, in in anticipation of why or how people might ask this question, who made you the authority, Paul? After all, these guys, they come with religious clout, and they know their Old Testament, and they say that those people back then, they were circumcised. They were part of the community of Israel. God accepted them. Who made you, boss? And gave you the corner on truth that it's Christ alone. So Paul, in anticipating that question, goes through the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he shares several defenses. And the first defense is, well, God appeared to me on the road to Damascus and he told me the gospel. I have it straight from God. Well, anybody can say I heard from God. You can say this morning, I heard from God and 
He told me, Nate, get off the stage this morning at 10.04, right now. I'd say, no, 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 I don't have to buy that. You could say that. Paul could say, hey, I heard from God. Well, he follows up with a second argument that coincides with his first. And the second is that three years after he was saved, he was on his way to Damascus. He was saved there. God appeared to him, shared the true gospel. He repented and believed in the true gospel of Christ alone. He's in Damascus, went out to the desert, comes back to Damascus. Three years later, he goes to the city of Jerusalem. He has not met the apostles Peter and James yet. And he goes there, and at the end of chapter 1, it says that when they met, there was fellowship that occurred because the gospel that Paul had heard on the road to Damascus is the same gospel that Peter and James had heard from Christ while he was here. Now, this is a defense and apologetic for the gospel when you think about it, that God was speaking powerfully to the apostle Paul in this location over here, giving him the truth of the gospel. And here's Peter and James. They come together, meet for the first time. Hey, we're in agreement. God has spoken to us both. Not only that, but in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, 11 years after that first meeting, I went back up to Jerusalem. And when I went to Jerusalem, you need to know this, I went with two fellows. Remember these guys from last week, Barnabas and Titus? This is like the Michigan and Ohio State jerseys. I don't know if you remember that from last week. He takes these two guys up to the church. And remember, these two people aren't supposed to be together in the Old Covenant. He takes Barnabas, who is a circumcised Jew, and then he takes Titus, who's a Gentile, who does not observe the Mosaic law, not circumcised, he walks up into Jerusalem with these two guys, and he's like, this is the gospel that I'm proclaiming, that God's grace through Jesus alone can bring these two individuals together into the people of God. Now listen, that would not have flown under the Mosaic law where you needed circumcision to be welcomed into the community of God. It's not that circumcision saved But under the old Mosaic law, you needed that in order to be welcomed in by the others into the community of God. And Paul's like, no, we're no longer under the Mosaic law. We're under grace that comes through Christ alone. And I've got two guys right here. Do you accept this, that these two guys can be saved? Circumcision's not needed. This guy can be circumcised, but they're both together. The apostles are like, let's give you the right hand of fellowship. We're in agreement. You can go off and share the gospel with the Gentiles and proclaim that gospel. So Paul is saying, look at where I've been. I'm confronting you that you need to know that it's Christ alone for the gospel. And here are the evidences and here are the proofs that I have under my belt. Now, there's a fourth one that we roll into today. And that's the way that he confronts Peter. The fourth evidence is Paul has authority to confront a major leader in the church. Now, sermon is divided into two points. The first point is simply this, that fear destroys unity, okay? We're going to see that, and that's going to be like a thread that pulls its way through this passage here. Fear destroys unity. So let's pick up where Jeff read for us. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Okay, who is Cephas? Just for clarity's sake, Cephas is Peter, Back in Jesus' ministry, when he called the disciples to himself, he came to a fisherman, and his name was Peter. Well, his name was Simon. John 1, verse 42, Jesus looked at this guy, and he said, you are Simon, the son of John, 
But now you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Cephas, or Peter, or Simon, has come up to Antioch. I want you to know where Antioch is. We've got this map again from last week. Antioch, you can see over here, is on this right side, right here, 300 miles to the south, like down there somewhere, okay? 300 miles down to the south is the city of Jerusalem. And Peter has made his way on in a journey all the way up to Antioch. It's interesting, if you want to read Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 11, Luke does not include Peter's journey up to Antioch, but it's, it's kind of a fun puzzle to try to want her, try to figure out when did Peter actually make it up here to Antioch for this passage that we're covering this morning. It happened at some point. Peter makes it up to Antioch. While he's in Antioch, um, an event occurs. Hang on. I got to share something with you about Antioch itself. How did the Christians in Antioch come into existence? This, this to me was pretty interesting because it differs and creates a culture, I should say, that's different from the culture down in Jerusalem. Acts 11. Acts 11 says this. Now, those who were scattered... Verses 19 to 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, the Antioch that we're talking about. Now realize people were fleeing persecution and running 300 miles north all the way up to Antioch. Uh, speaking, to the word, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus, you saw that island out in the Mediterranean, and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so the one thing that I want you to notice here is that the church was formed because Jews who had converted to Christianity were being persecuted in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a hotbed for Jewish Christians to be persecuted. If you're a Jewish Christian living in Jerusalem, watch out because there were religious leaders, you can read about this in the early chapters of Acts especially, who were just persecuting you. So these guys hauled all the way up north to Antioch to look for a safe place. While they're there, people start coming to Antioch and these, like, the gospel is being preached, and the church is formed. Now, Peter comes up to this place in Antioch. And that's where we pick up verse 11 here, where Peter comes up, Paul is there, and these two have a major collision in the church there. Paul opposes him to his face publicly in front of everybody. Well, what was it that Peter did? Peter was eating a meal with the Gentiles the Gentile Christians. Most likely, these were folks who were not circumcised, not observing the Jewish law. However, to the devout Jew, this is a problem because to eat with a Gentile signifies fellowship. We have oneness with one another. 
And the Jewish, not the Jewish Christian leaders, but the Jewish leaders down in Jerusalem are saying, we are losing our heritage. We are losing our traditions. And the only way to keep our people together is to snuff out the Christians. Well, here's Peter as a Jew walking away from his ethnic traditions up in Antioch, eating with Gentiles, eating their food. And a group of men show up. And it tells us that these men come from James. James was leading the church down in Jerusalem. It's the place where the persecution is happening. And Peter eventually has to go back down to Jerusalem. When these guys show up at the potluck dinner... Peter, who's sitting at the table with Gentiles, enjoying sausage or something, he pulls back from them and goes over and starts eating with the Jewish Christians. It says that he did this because he feared, notice, he feared the circumcision party. Okay, now we're asking the question, wait a second, who is the circumcision party? Paul doesn't say exactly. One possibility is that the circumcision party is the group that came up with James. After all, they were Jewish Christians, and, you know, they had that Jewish culture in their background. However, to me, that doesn't make, like, a ton of sense because earlier in the chapter, Paul says he walked right up to James and the apostles with Barnabas and Titus, remember the non-circumcised guy, and it's like, this is my gospel. And all of those guys, those Jewish Christians, gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, we're with you. We don't have any problem with this. Go and minister to the Gentiles. So were these guys who came up from James, the circumcision party? It's possible. It doesn't make sense to me that it is. The other possibility is that the circumcision party is the false brothers mentioned back in verse 4. So... Just go back earlier in your chapter, verse 4, where Paul says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Like, something's going on where these religious leaders are able to see Paul and everything that's going on there. I think that Peter is fearing those people back in Jerusalem, not James and his cohorts. But why would he fear those who are down in Jerusalem when it's just James's men that are up there in Antioch? All right, let me see if this works for you. Paul doesn't exactly say, but this is just sort of Nate hypothesizing here, so you can take it or leave it. Imagine it's 1955, and you are from Biloxi, Mississippi, where segregation laws are in place. You go to the diner, and you know that there's a section for white people and for black people, and the two are not supposed to meet. However, you head north, and you cross the Mason-Dixon line, and you're in Chicago, and you're at a diner, and you're meeting with some black friends there, and you're having a good old meal until you see some people from Biloxi, Mississippi show up. Now, these people... They're not necessarily for segregation. They show up there, 
and you're sitting at the table with your black friends, and all of a sudden in your mind, you see five or six of them, and you know that they know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody down in Biloxi, and you have to head back there in a few weeks. And you know that if word gets out to the segregationists when you go back down there, you might have a dead cat on your front fence. You might have a brick thrown through your window. You might have a cross burning in your front yard. And so for fear of the people down in Biloxi, because these individuals are up here, you know you're going back there. You're saying, wait a second, friends. I don't, this is not good. I got to back away from you guys right now because of what might happen to me when I head back down south. Schreiner tends to think that that's the case. Other commentators tend to think that that's the case. I think that's what's going on. I think Peter says, man, there's too many connections here that are going on, and I might be in trouble when I head back to Jerusalem. Now, did Peter know better than that? It's a tough situation. Does Peter know better than to act that way? He does. Because God has spoken to him about all of this. And that's where we read more in Acts about how God is moving the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Peter had a vision, and this is what he says. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. By the way, a lot of those are unclean things that the Jewish law would not have allowed you to eat. And there came a voice to him and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says in response to that, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Verses 15 and 16, God responds back to him and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. In that same chapter, after Peter receives that vision, there's this Gentile man named Cornelius. And God is telling Peter, hey, you need to share this gospel and be ready for this man Cornelius. So that whole story happens in Acts 10, and Peter confesses this at the end of Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, no partiality between Jew and Gentile, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So now here's Peter up in Antioch. He knows that the food, the dietary laws are done. He knows that the division between Gentiles and Jews are done. And now he's up in Antioch, he's sitting at the table, here come these Christian leaders down from Jerusalem, and he backs away from the table. Does Peter know better? Yes, he does know better. But why does he do it? He does it because the text says that he is controlled by fear. He fears the circumcision party. He fears a harder life ahead of him. Now, folks, this is where you can see these principles that need to be woven through here. You can see that caving into fear is going to destroy unity among believers. The book of Proverbs says this, The fear of man lays a snare, 
but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You think of the fear of man like a trap, and you put your foot into it, and that thing clamps onto you, it hurts you, and it holds you tightly. The question is, well, what frees you from the fear of man? Well, you need to have a greater fear or a greater respect for someone or something else. And that greater fear or that greater respect, you lift your eyes off man and you get your eyes on God. And that's what Peter's missing. He's not seeing God in the moment. He's seeing man in the moment. So Proverbs 19 verse 23 says this, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. So I'm just going to throw this principle out there for us this morning that you can see where fear of man can cause these sort of sectarian groups to occur within a church and throw wedges down and say, well, I better do what they say because if I don't, I'm going to have a harder life ahead. And Paul is just coming up to him and he's opposing him to his face and he's saying, get your eyes off of people and get them on God. What's important for us, another principle to realize is that any of us, including leaders in the church, myself being one of them, I am susceptible to fear of man. And you need to know that. Um, I've heard many stories over the years from folks who have been at churches where their pastor was placed on a high pedestal as though he wore the garments of pure righteousness, no sin ever in his life kind of thing. And sin came along, and it just wrecked the church. Now, I'm not saying any kind of, I don't have any subliminal message. I just want you to know that your pastors are ordinary men who can cave and be susceptible to sin, just like Peter here. And what happens is that sin disrupts the unity in the church. Paul's not going to stand for it because he knows that the gospel can overcome divisions in church that are caused by fear of man. And this is the good news. Like, we don't have to stay there at all. Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, that were brought together by their belief in Jesus can stay together because of their belief in Jesus. But when our eyes get, get distracted and focused on other things, oh, here comes these little sects within the church. Okay, so how does Paul address this? It's very interesting. He weaves many things together at this point. One, he weaves Peter's fear of man together with the works of the law that he has been arguing against. And so he turns us to this, we'll go to their second point here, is that the truth of justification unites Christians and drives out fear. All right, so look at verse 14. You can see this. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. He rebuked him publicly because this act happened publicly. He said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, you know, that's where you were eating the sausage with them at the table and not like a Jew, how can you now force the Gentiles to come over to your side and eat like a Jew? Your, your behavior is contradicting your belief. 
And where he moves next is, how are we going to get this straight? He just moves right into the doctrine of justification. So verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter, you're fearing the people who believe in works of the law for their salvation. Do you get that? Do you get that you're caving to a message over here that believes in works of the law for justification? You know better than that. How are you going to have a right standing? You're going to have a right standing by being justified by God. And so we're forced to think of this. Do you want a right standing in front of man today? Is that what you want? And I think about it just in terms of like secondary applications. Many of you have fear of man issues. Do you really want a standing, a right standing in front of man Or do you want a right standing in front of God? Who is it that you're going to fear and respect most? And that's what Paul is saying. How are you justified? He uses this term justified three times here. Justified simply means you're innocent. You're not guilty. The opposite is condemnation. You're condemned, you're guilty. Justification. Here, God has the means to justify you. And so the question is, whom do you want to be justified before, powerful men or before God? So Paul says, we know that a man or a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I love what Paul says here. For several reasons. Number one is this. What matters most or what should matter most to us is that when we believe in Jesus for our salvation, God puts an identity upon us that supersedes what any person thinks about us. Okay, can can we just like think about that for a moment? When you believe In Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, God puts an identity upon you that supersedes what any man or woman ever thinks about you. What God thinks about you matters most. And Paul is saying, it's through Christ that you're justified. It's through Christ that you get this identity. It's through Christ that you receive this justification. And it's not hard. This section just clearly sets it out that justification happens by faith in Christ, not by works. Why not? Why can't it be works? If you attain justification by works, God becomes a debtor to you. You know, you start doing good things and you pile up your good works and you bring them before God and it's almost like, God, you owe me now. Do we really think that God owes us. No, he doesn't owe us. There's no way that we can live up to the standard of the law and bring all of those things before God and say, now, now, 
let me in. I deserve to be let in based on what I've done. See, here's the standard of the law. Look what I've done this week. The law does nothing for us, but shows us sin over and over and over again. And what it should do is take us from this place where we're seeing our sin and help us cry out, God, I need a savior. I'm guilty. I need to be justified. And Paul, three times, he mentions how this justification happens. He says it happens by faith in Christ, belief in Jesus Christ, faith in Christ. So, if I'm standing on a rocky mountain, juts way above the clouds, some of those out west, and it's nothing but sheer cliff all the way around the mountain, and it's called Mountain of the Condemned. And there I am on that mountain, and off on the horizon is another mountain peak called Mountain of the Justified. How do I get there? Do I do it by drawing up my own strength and my own works? No. You take what's given to you in the gondola, if you will, and you trust the gondola to bring you over to the mountain of the justified. It's only by the means of that gift that you can get there. And what God is saying is to go from the place of being a pagan sinner to being in the place of being justified, you have to hold to Christ. Here's how Martin Luther said it. When he's on the mountain of the condemned, the sinner begins to sigh and say, who then can help me? Terrified by the law and utterly despairing of his own strength, he looks about and sighs for the help of another, of a mediator and of a savior. Then comes in good time the healthful word of the gospel, which says, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Believe in Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. If you feel your sins and their burden, look not upon them in yourself, but remember that they are translated and laid upon Christ, whose stripes have made you whole. This is the beginning of health and salvation. By this means, we are delivered from sin, justified and made inheritors of everlasting life. Not for our own works, but for our faith, whereby we lay hold upon Christ. If we can walk away with this true, one truth, I, I just want us to be able to know that it's faith in Christ which justifies. When we realize that God has given us a verdict on our lives, there's no reason for us to fear man. When we're not fearing man, there's not going to be disunity or wedges that are driven deep into the church. Because we all have our gaze on God saying, you're the one who gave us the gift of being righteous. Our gaze is fixed on you, not upon ourselves. Another reason why I just appreciate the doctrine of justification is because it addresses a challenge that I have deep in who I am. I don't feel justified all the time. Do you feel justified all the time? Do you feel like you're saved all the time? Or do you look back at your past and you see a laundry list of things that you wish could just be highlighted, deleted, thrown out of your life, and yet they're there. 
And you look at that and you know, I stand condemned because of that. And maybe it's just been one of those weeks where you look at your heart and you say, my heart has been just a fortress of evil this last week. And you know that God looks right down into your heart with no inhibitions and he can see every thought, he can see every motive, everything going on in your heart. Like, I certainly don't feel justified. What do you do? Well, you can run out to the law and start making yourself feel better by doing all kinds of good works. That's not going to work. The doctrine of justification says, as Martin Luther said, you sigh and you look for the Savior. You look for the one who has no laundry list. You look for the one who went to the cross. Our sins were translated upon him. And we say, yes, I need him. I need him. And by faith, I lay hold of him. And when I lay hold of him, God is saying, yes, justified, declared innocent. It's Christ and it's focusing on the doctrine of justification that pulls us out of the pit where we feel as though we're not saved. I think also for a church, when we come together, what this helps us, as we've talked about in weeks past, is that we're not staring at each other across the aisle or across the room, measuring people based upon, you know, the standards of society or the standards of cultural Christianity. I fear becoming a church that only fits one kind of Christian. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, come on in the doors if you sort of have a nice blue shirt, khakis on, and you know all the Christianese language of Grand Haven. Doesn't that just sound like, ugh, something's off with a place like that? Don't you fear that? And what justification does is it takes that and it tees it up and smacks it out and says, that's not why we meet here. That is not our commonality here. If God would be kind to us and lift our gaze above those standards that we have, or if I don't meet that standard, oh man, maybe I'm going to be set aside. If God would lift our eyes above that, which I think he's doing among us, lift our eyes above that and say, hey brother, from the other side of the tracks, you might not have the blue shirt and khaki pants on this morning, but that is not our standard of Christianity. One iota. What is it? It's belief in Jesus Christ. And so when this person who doesn't look like me is right next to me, we look at him together and we say, look what God has done. And that's what makes the church the church. So you might be here and you might not be blue shirt and khakis today. I care about you and I hope you care about me. And I hope that together we turn our eyes to the one who says, here's my son, believe in him, and now you're united into the body because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So let me close with this. Our behavior of unity with one another must always be led by our belief 
that God is the one who justifies us all. Our belief must lead our behavior, and that's where Peter failed. His behavior was inconsistent with his belief in that moment. And if our belief leads our behavior, there's no fear because we see God as the one whom we're ultimately pleasing. We've been justified by God, and he says, I declare you innocent. I'm not worried about what man thinks. We together look at God, and we say, thank you, God. You're the one who has declared me innocent by the gift of your son. Let your belief in Christ and this truth of justification now lead us as a church, lead you as an individual in your behavior this week, and may we be united around Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We're thankful that we see episodes like this which remind us of our own human frailty, our morality, our immorality, our weaknesses, our tendencies to behave in such a way that is inconsistent with what we say we believe. I pray that you would bring us back to just having a right perspective in life, that we would lift our eyes above people and turn our eyes to you over and over again. And having a right gaze set on you, we would allow and surrender to the gospel where we can accept one another not for a standard that's met, but because of the gift of grace that comes to us through Christ. Please help us as a church, Lord. Please help us to be the kind of church that is centered around the gospel and lives that out in meaningful ways with one another. I pray that where there's sin in our lives, that you would expose that sin and Bring us to a place of repentance. I pray that you would be pleased to use your spirit in our lives this week in such a way that the gospel would be magnified and glorified, not belittled, not tossed aside, not abandoned. So please help us. I pray that you'd bring us humility in these areas that... um, that the gospel addresses in our lives and that we would see that unity uh, continue to press forward into our future as a church family. And we pray now that you would bless us as we go into our week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.